Do you know about how the area might be changing? Apparently, a lot of it's been. Um, I think it's compulsory bought by the council. I've heard apparently. We've heard possibly a stadium where the fruit market is. I have a lot of the staff coming here to buy food, so the discussion is excitement. Obviously, a lot of them may lose jobs. Uh, all, we, all we've heard is uh, the, the market's been sold, yeah. but we don't know anything what's going on from there. If they decided to close this down, then I, I wouldn't have a job. I'd be out of a job, yeah. I've um, just seen all the building work going on, basically. I didn't really take too much of an interest. <laughs> is it apartments? I think, yeah, I think so, yeah. Too. That's yeah. what it looks like to me. It's like you get a letter saying, right, it's going to start, and then it doesn't start. And then we've seen the odd builder and the odd person over there doing stuff, but nothing sort of kicked off, if you know what I mean. It's not my first rodeo. I've, I've built places like that up in London. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, first, first they take over the warehouses, then the price of coffee goes up, and then there's a giant flat block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are the seeds of gentrification. The audio clips you just heard are from people living and working in the area of St. Philip's Marsh in the city of Bristol. If you went down to the marsh today, you'd find yourself amongst recycling lorries, car garages and all other sorts of light industry. But it hasn't always been like this. There's a hundred year old nursery between a train depot and a waste management plant. Around the corner, there's an almost 200 year old animal shelter. And there's now immersive art exhibitions popping up left, right and centre. St Philip's Marsh has a rich history, from making the bricks that built Bristol to thriving communities. There was even a play written and performed all about the marsh. However, as you heard from those audio clips, the marsh today is in a precarious situation and potentially on the brink of a significant change. My name is Sanborn. And I'm Beth. We are both student researchers at the University of Bristol and we've spent the past year getting to know the marsh talking to the people who work in and care about the area whilst trying to see what the future holds for St Philip's. And on this podcast, we are going to wallow around in the marsh and talk to some key figures involved in the incoming changes to the area. We will talk to several guests, including representatives from Bristol City Council and the University of Bristol, both key stakeholders in the area. Above all, we're interested in exploring in uncertain times what makes a modern community. But before all that, we talk to Harry Pitts, the lead on our St Philip's project and someone who knows a thing or two about the area. I'm Dr Harry Pitts. I'm a senior lecturer in work, employment, organisation and public policy at University of Bristol Business School. Could you outline the area to someone who doesn't know the marsh or even the city? Well, St Philip's Marsh is uh, sometimes referred to as an island because it's bordered by uh, the River Avon, um, the feeder canal Um, and then quite a big road that uh, also goes around it. It's located close to Temple Mead Station, which is a big train station, so there's also a big rail depot there as well. So, you know, like a lot of industrial areas, it's it's tied to its local kind of road and and, and rail infrastructure um, uh, historically. And the place has been an area of massive change, I guess, over the 20th century um, and now in the 21st century as well. Um, It was reasonably residential the you know very dense uh, housing built around industry there uh, you know subsequently to that um, in the 1960s many of the residential areas were subject to compulsory purchase orders and then um, that made way for what it is now which is a you know a modern industrial estate 
Um, and obviously there's been tremendous industrial change over that period as well, but it's also been an area onto which different visions of the future have been projected over time. And the, the latest one um, is again a, a return away from uh, the idea of it being an industrial estate much more towards a, a residential area again. And are there any quirks or surprising features in the marsh? Well, I think it, its history is very interesting. It tells us a lot about how you know, how history and change and, and futures kind of relate to one another. In the 1980s, the community um, who uh, had a relationship with the area, many of whom no longer lived there because they, they'd moved on um, uh, to make way for the industrial estate, which was a you know uh, you know it was a point of great sadness and tension in the community, um, but people had very fond memories of it. So they actually made a, a musical called Yesterday's Island, which uh, had a run at the Hippodrome in Bristol, um, which kind of captured their their feelings of of the past of 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 um, of St Philip's Marsh um, and those changes that had taken place in their own kind of family and community stories around that. And broadly speaking. What are some of the threats to the area today then? Well, I mean, you know, the, the kind of threats are those that confront a lot of similar kind of areas. I mean, industrial estates um, perform a vital role often in the local um, regional economies. Um, you know, they're home to a lot of essential forms of work and provision of um, different kinds of goods and materials and, um, and, and suppliers of those to other local businesses. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the things that you see in a lot of industrial estates is that they become they initially offer themselves as a source of cheap space to uh you know gradually um you know creatives entrepreneurs and things like that and you're seeing some of those same changes on the industrial estate so a transformation from um you know heavy industry towards a range of different kinds of creatives or uh coffee roasteries or breweries which is typical of a lot of industrial estates uh, in the UK um you know that comes with uh you know obviously pressures towards um you know gentrification and things like that and even the people that are at the moment changing the face of the industrial estate find themselves challenged by rising rents um and that type of thing so that's kind of some short-term kind of tendencies there there's the university which is moving in close by which you know is associated with um in the in the minds of some of the people that that um, work and, and live around the area that is increasingly kind of buying up more land to um build new parts of the university uh, state um some of that is about uh, reinvigorating a certain um you know kinds of industries innovative cutting-edge kind of business in the area as well which obviously you know it rests upon an idea that it's going to change quite fundamentally and there's also a set of plans um, that the St Philip's Marsh will become largely in the years to come um, you know in the decades to come a largely residential area where the types of um, businesses that will be there will be more like office um, blocks for instance um, you know co-working spaces cafes and things like that which is quite different to um, what the industrial estate represents at the moment um, so those kind of changes are really the ones that are most concerning, I guess, to some of the, the workers and some of the businesses that we spoke to as part of the project. So now we know a little bit about the area and its context within Bristol, we should probably tell you more about our project. To do that, we spoke to Maddie Kerchik, who has coordinated our research down on the marsh. Hey Maddie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself for us? Sure. I'm Maddie. I'm uh, a research associate at Bristol Uni in the business management department. And I'm working on the Future of Work project in St. Philip's Marsh. How would you summarise the St. Philip's Marsh project? 
the original project was quite broad in its scope, so we had three different industrial sites, and we were interested in exploring how workers felt about potential threats to their employment, so automation or the green transition. Um, and then as the project has kind of developed, we've focused more, or actually only, on the St. Philip's Marsh area, as there's a lot uh, of things happening in the space. And our interests have kind of also shifted away from the threat of automation and green transition towards more localized issues to do with uh, the use of land, uh, local council debates, kind of community organizing in the area, how workers' voices are uh, taken into account, if at all. So that's what the project's basically become about. So it seems like a place of contrast. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean... It's an interesting place because I think, especially to an outsider, you wouldn't imagine that like a kind of tech or science incubator would be right next door to like a recycling um, plant, I guess. And so there's obvious kind of visible contrast between the kinds of buildings that are down there and the kinds of businesses that are taking place. I think there's also contrast between um, visions of the future around the marsh. So each of the communities or even every worker that we've spoken to has a unique kind of perspective on what the marsh ought to be or how they'd like it to be in the future. Um, For example, industrial workers obviously are quite happy with their work being stable um, and some of them feel it's important to have, for example, the waste management located in such a central area for numerous reasons. Um, And then there are kind of you know, workers who are part of these new companies who are keen to work in a nicer space um, where there's green space and there's more shops and perhaps more places to have a coffee or a meal. um, And those places aren't really at the moment located on the marsh. So these are kind of contrasts between how much it can remain um, industrialized and how much it should become more of a place that can be like livable and workable. So, yeah. What would you say is the overarching feeling you get when you talk to people on the marsh? Um, When we ask people about uh, perspective plans for the area, um, there's a lot of people who don't know anything about the proposals. There's a lot of people who have heard rumors about proposals. And then there's some people who are really highly informed but are still confused about timelines or about how the things are actually going to come to fruition. Um, There's also a sense of frustration amongst a lot of the people down on the marsh just in terms of related to that confusion, kind of trying to understand when things are going to change, if they are going to change, and how. Um, And then, of course, with the community that I mentioned that has these historical connections or people who feel like they have uh, a deeper connection to the community, there's a sense of kind of anxiety or sadness about the way that the area might change and a desire for a nostalgic space that was more connected and also more respected, Um, a frustration around not being consulted more in how it's going to change. So I think those are the general reoccurring sentiments. Okay, I think we should take a minute to go over the issues. So we've worked with Harry and Maddie on the project and I mean, we can definitely say that there is confusion. Yeah, that's right. And you you hear all sorts of rumours. A new football stadium to replace uh, a fruit market, which is currently there. 
new student flats coming up left, right and centre, an innovation district, a climate friendly neighbourhood. Like I said, like all sorts of developments. I mean, this leaves people in a really precarious situation. I mean, people working and living in the area, I mean, they know change is happening. I mean, some actually welcome it, but almost everybody just isn't sure what's happening. I mean, when it's happening or what exactly it's going to mean for them or their business. Yeah. However, there is some development which gets brought up in the vast majority of conversations, and that is the new university buildings. So they're currently putting up a new campus just next to the marsh, and with it, several private student property developers are eyeing up the surrounding area with the view to build student accommodation. So, in light of this, we spoke to Jess Sharrett, who's a representative from the university. Okay, thank you for coming to talk to us today. Um, Could you briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your job? So I'm Jess Sharrett. Uh, I'm an Engagement and Enterprise Associate for uh, Temple Quarter Enterprise Campus, um, which is the new development the University of Bristol is uh, embarking on right next to Temple Meads, um, sort of very close to St Philip's Marsh. Can you explain why the university has chosen this area of Bristol to move into? So I think the university really saw... um, a lot of different opportunities um, in working in in this area. It's obviously an enterprise zone, um, so it's an area the local council has kind of earmarked for development and is keen to um, see kind of investment in. And I think as a university, when we were considering our relationship with the city, I think it's safe to say um, that historically there are communities in Bristol that perhaps we haven't done such a good job of working with and engaging particularly if you think about some communities based in the east and the south of the city and so this location just seemed perfect for reimagining what it means to be a university in Bristol. I think traditionally our reputation has been probably fairly that we're up on the hill a little bit cut off and whilst lots of our staff and students do really exciting things in the city as a university I think it's there's lots more we could and should be doing and so the potential to build a new campus in such a a great location to do some of that work just felt like too good an opportunity to miss. And could you outline the university plans for the temple area? Yeah of course so the university um, has had a presence kind of near St Philip's Marsh and in the temple quarter area for for a while now Um, but uh, the kind of um, university presence in the area is increasing quickly at the moment. So this year, um, the sheds opened. The sheds are just north of St. Philip's Marsh, so just bordering it. And they house uh, the Bristol Digital Futures Institute, which looks at um, the digital future and how it can be inclusive and sustainable and equitable, um, how we make sure the digital uh, world we are living in doesn't exclude people and so on and so forth. And my world that develops creative technologies for media and their research uh, facilities that are kind of run by the university that have opened and are opening this year. And then... There's a kind of big flagship campus, if you like, planned for uh, 2025, I think is the earliest start um, opening date we're expecting. And that will house a whole range of different um, subjects, uh, academics, students and some business partners as well. So it's safe to say it's kind of increasing rapidly there at the moment. And we will be very, very close neighbours of, of St Philip's Marsh. I think obviously when there's student accommodation going up, you're going to change the profile of an area. Are you concerned at all, or is the university concerned at all, about how this sort of development might change the identity of an area? 
I think it's a really, really important question. Um, and I think, I think areas have lots of different identities. And I think if you ask someone about St. Philip's Marsh or um, the sorting office, you know, the exact spot where the campus is going up, uh, there's probably as many different relationships with it as there are people in Bristol. So I'm, I'm never quite sure how you arrive on what the identity of an area kind of is. But of course, new students, new arrivals of any sort do change a place and do change how people feel about a place. That's absolutely true. And I think it's really important though that that's kind of managed um, carefully and managed well. And I think often it's about it probably sounds you can tell I've just come back from a festival and I'm feeling very peace and love but it's about kind of understanding each other I think those difficulties and concerns and tensions often arise when there isn't communication um you know taking the student example students bring phenomenal benefits to a place they may they need somewhere to live that's true and they may need to put the bins out one night a week that's also true and all those sorts of things people complain about but they also bring um huge benefits to an area i think that i was looking at some research this morning and i mean it's it's quite a crass measure of value but student spending power in bristol alone they think the university of bristol students add over 200 million to the local uh, gdp each year in spending which is going into local businesses you know they're eating out they're going out for drinks they're getting in taxis and so on and so forth so i think um i've probably waffled around your question a bit but i think uh, the university is is mindful of the way that identities and areas can change. And I think really open, um, honest dialogue is a really important part of how we address that. What I've tended to find, though, when when we talk to people either who live or work in the area, um, there is there is often some concern. It might be about, like you say, about the kind of lack of any kind of benefit for them or even perceived risks to them it, and that might be about jobs like you've mentioned but it might be about housing it might be about lots of different things um but i think i think when you start talking to people about the plans we have um in terms of supporting employability opportunities in terms of kind of changing the profile of who works at the university in terms of what we hope to be able to offer um physically on campus to local community as well as to staff and students it's you know it, it's engagement on that so it's kind of starting to um see positives and benefits for the local area as well um, what benefits might university development bring to the area? So I would say um, one would be accessibility. Um, I mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier, the eastern entrance to Temple Meads um, will be opening up. I think that will make St. Philip's Marsh specifically much more accessible, both from the train station and from town which will um, kind of bring it closer to the city centre. It's physically very close, but the kind of network of water and railway at the moment means it hasn't always felt very close and I think that will change and I think that's got real kind of benefits attached to it and I hope it will bring new opportunities and like I say we've been considering how we make sure our staff body better reflects the city we're drawn from so as a university we're looking at um, introducing more and more apprenticeships for people and we're looking we've built a program called join us which changes paths into um, careers at the university to try and make sure we're recruiting from communities who perhaps traditionally wouldn't have thought to work for the university. Um, there's a whole 
you know, universities are big places. We've got nearly 7,000 employees and some of them are academics, but we've also got building managers, technicians, lawyers, cleaners, you know, you, you name it. And at the moment, those are quite well-paid jobs and they're mostly in Clifton. And the chance to bring some of them to the centre, to, close to the marsh, and create opportunities to, to kind of get those jobs, I think is really important and really valuable. The zone as a whole, so the, the council project aims to create 22,000 jobs in the area um, and a significant proportion of them will be university jobs. So we hope we would make a net positive contribution in terms of employability in the area. Thank you to Jess for speaking to us. It was nice to have a clear conversation about what's happening and the university's intentions with their development plans. Yeah, and Jess really did outline some potential positives for the university to development. I mean, the image of an integrated student and working community is hard not to get on board with. But we're not entirely convinced that this is what the development is going to look like. Yeah, and I think, I think part of that is because of what St. Philip's Marsh is today. It's not a particularly pretty area. It's hard to even walk around it safely with it being set up for these massive vehicles coming in and out all day. Not pedestrians, especially not masses of students. But it is extremely functional. I mean, you're right. Everything in St. Philip's really serves its purpose. I mean, there are several waste management plants there, including the Bristol City Council recycling plant. There are loads of businesses supplying materials and other bits and bobs for the working community, as well as loads of mechanics and garages. Yeah, and I feel like you need a place in a city for this industry. And logistically, having it close to the centre does make sense. But again, it doesn't, this doesn't neatly fit in with a shiny new like, digital university campus. You can definitely understand the hesitation coming from the businesses operating there at the moment. I think the development in St Phillips Marsh, I mean, it is going to come down to the planning and execution of it. And as Jess alluded to, a lot of that is the council's responsibility. Yeah, for sure. And so to find out more about the council's plans for the area and also the history of the marsh, we spoke to Pete Insull, who works for Bristol City Council. So my name's Pete Insull. I'm the Principal Historic Environment Officer for the City Council, which is a bit of a mouthful. Uh, that means my role is uh, in the planning department. I mean, I'm sitting in a team uh, called the Urban Design Team, Urban Design and Conservation Team, really. Uh, that's in planning. My main role is to ensure we look after the heritage of the city um, for the current generations and future generations, yeah. Could you tell us about the story of St Philip's Marsh? So how did it originate as a place? The stories are rich wherever you look, and St Philip's Marsh is a really rich story. It is, it is the engine house for the city, and has always been that. So if you go right back in time to our earliest understanding of what that place is, it's a floodplain. You know, that's immediately, that in terms of placemaking, that immediately is a massive challenge. It's clues in the name. It's a marsh, yeah? It's going to get wet, it, when it, seasonally at least, or when the tide comes in, it's going to get wet. Now, well, that means when you go back in time, you look at, well, how has that land therefore been used on a floodplain? Now, traditionally, floodplains are used for rough grazing of animals and those sorts of things. And you might be lucky to get a very early industry if you're lucky. So Phyllis Marsh is, yes, rough grazing. But as the city is expanding, particularly eastwards, and industrialization is just getting started in the 18th century, 
St. Philip's Marsh is being utilised, or the underlying clays are being utilised for brick making. If you look at the earliest plan we have of St. Philip's Marsh, Rock, the man who made that plan, has labelled it as brickyards across that, that whole landscape around the, along the Avon. And what's happening there is that clay is being extracted from below the ground and they're build, making bricks on the marsh and those bricks are then building Bristol. We now see it as this kind of light industrial area when we think about that area, but that happens because A, it's on a floodplain and B, because it had industry right from the very beginnings of how it, was, how it originated. And then once the city is starting to expand eastwards in the 18th century primarily and then into the early 19th century, you start to get industries, almost like ribbon start industries, following the river along because being by the river makes absolute sense for being, uh, having an industry there because you've got raw materials being delivered and exports going out on barges and what have you. You've got power source there with the river as well, of course. Um, but you'd start to get things like you have dirty industries like lead works and things getting founded along there, glass works along Avon Street, and that's not quite on St. Phillips Marsh at this point, but it starts to spread out from the core of the city out onto that floodplain with all of these other industries. When you come to the later 19th century, by that point, St. Phillips Marsh is starting, or certainly the northwestern corner of the marsh, is starting to be occupied by a lot of those types of lead works and those sort of dirty industries. And then you've also got houses being built there as well. Uh, and so that's the kind of the background to that early origins of a, what was a very thriving community in the 19th century, even into the 20th century. It's only once you start to have planning change there that you start to change the designation of the area from housing. After the war, it becomes a, it identifies an area of work rather than an area of, of living, you know, a residential area. You then get the light industrial uses coming in. So the sort of sheds and things you see down there now is the product of planning change after the war, where they've kind of started to go, right, well, we've defined these areas of slums, so we're going to demolish the housing and we're going to put places of work in there. And so then when you, when you go and work there, you're travelling in because you've got a new road network set up and you've got a nice bath road and all these other sorts of ways of getting there and you've got right next to a station. It's a place of work, not a place where people live. And now when you go there, what was a community of like 5,000 people or more living there, now you can probably count the number of people living on the marsh on the fingers of one hand with a couple of hands. How do you manage new development while still preserving the integrity of an area? An issue with planning, as it has been historically, is that it has a tendency to simplify places in that it designates it, oh, it's a place of work or it's a place to live, um, or it's a road or whatever, or a school or whatever it might be. And I think what makes places great is when you embrace that complexity. And actually, places are complex places, and we shouldn't be afraid of that complexity. We should be trying to encourage greater mixes of uses. Really, what we need to be talking about is not necessarily economic values. What we need to talk about, and we are, the council is talking these things, is talking about social values, the kind of the greater good for this change process. And it sometimes is not going to be about making millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. It's about securing... Uh, healthy places for people to live and work and grow up and i don't think but i don't think the council as a as a you know as an institution would, would argue against that that's what the council want to see for all of its neighborhoods whether it's infinite marsh or wherever it is 
They want to see sustainable communities. They want to see sustainable growth. And that cannot be market-led. And on that, what do you see for the future of the marsh? The future of St Philip's Marsh, I believe, is is one of a sustainable community. I, I really think that the place has... Um, not thrived as much as it would have otherwise done because it has a low population there now once you bring people back to the marsh and that's when when you do the interview people down there the main thing they talk about is they want to see housing there again they want to see people back on the marsh again and i'm sure a lot of those businesses when you talk to the existing businesses down there they will say yeah we're great to have people down here we get more footfall we get you know um you know, more economic growth, we, we will benefit from that. We would welcome it. Uh, I think what I would love to see is that those existing businesses are in- integrated within that change so that you don't displace those businesses to somewhere else in the city, that they are part of Symphonist Marsh. They will all say we are part of the marsh and we wouldn't ever want to move from here. So it's about just coming it's the same reason why you do uh, a design that integrates, you know, works with the flooding risk and, and, and the topography. You also do designs that integrate the existing users of the marsh, the people who are there now, so that, yes, you have new developments coming in. How would you respond to concerns of gentrification when it comes to developing St. Philip's Marsh? Gentrification is, is this word that people use a lot when they talk about regeneration and it's it's just like i said about define regeneration define gentrification and i don't i don't think there's ever any clear definition about what these terms really mean and what and again it's a gentrification is almost like a word i said about communities feeling threatened by change and it's almost like a word that is a kind of uh, product of this fear of change and it's this sort of product of um yeah, the fact we we use that word and we and we talk about oh it's not what it was once before it used to be like this I could afford to live in these houses all these other sorts of things. Gentrification is actually a, is a product of of land values. What we generally I don't believe in this country we have a you don't have much of an understanding about how land value is is really the t- key driver of this change. So you mentioned de- developers, and we talk about regenerating Symphilis Marsh. It's like, but who who are these people? Who are these developers? What 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 is really going on here? And who are those people who are actually doing these things? Um, if you want to uh, control uh, land values, which then leads to if, if land values rise, that's what ge- that's how gentrification comes about. And if you want to control those land values, then the council or or some philanthropist or someone who's who's really caring about this place would have to own that land the change happening in St Philip's Marsh it's not going to be overnight you know it's not a, it's not a hurricane katrina thing going on there it it really will be this slow steady change but that change is already happening you've already you can see planning applications coming in there for student housing on feeder road or um you know whatever what mostly student housing actually down feeder road or albert road um and, and so it's in, it's inevitable some change is going to happen. But once you've got student housing there, that don't necessarily think that's necessarily going to lead to gentrification. And what does that look like anyway? St. Philip's Marsh, it'll be a long, long time coming. 
so that I can see the fox being there. Once you've got students living down there, the fox will be doing a roaring trade, I'm no doubt. And other businesses like that will come in because you've got tapestry around the corner there as well. But the fact that our waste transfer um, facility is on St. Philip's Marsh at the moment, which is absolutely fundamental to how we re do recycling on a city scale, that's got to go somewhere because you're not going to want to live down there. That's not going to be gentrified while that's there. So... You know, we we can talk about gentrification, but I can't. It's a lot. It seems a long, long, long way away there. Really long way away. But it's only controlled by people who owns that land, and you have to control the land values to ha to try and rein that in. Because other people say, oh, I'm I welcome gentrification because I can get some artisan sourdough bread now. And Jess, speaking on behalf of the university, explained a lot of the benefits of sort of the university's presence in the marsh area but on the flip side we've heard a lot of people voice concerns about the move so what do you think about this where there are tensions about that i get a sense it is about when we have student accommodation coming in and i think that is the problem with that is that when people look at it they think that's not creating that mixed community and creating welcoming places for the rest of the city. It's very monoculture and, and monoculture in, a, in its broadest sense in the, in the fact that this is for young people who are studying at the university. And that's, that's who this neighborhood is going to be for. It's not actually going to be for St. Philip's Marsh people. It's not going to be for people from Barton Hill. It's not going to be people from, from St. Jude's or Totterdown wherever and I think that is where it becomes a challenge and some of that accommodation is not even to do with the university really it's just because the university's come in they're going to do this campus and then all of a sudden these uh, accommodation providers then say oh brilliant there's going to be a market there you want you want some accommodation we can build that for you and we get that as a planning application with the university moving in I'm not saying you then therefore get gentrification but what you do get is businesses associated with that university use and you get one use and just like i was arguing if you want mixed uses you need a truly mixed use kind of neighborhood where you have all communities having ownership of these spaces and feel comfortable about going into these places and, and having a business not just to serve student life but to serve the the rest of the community there and i think that is the danger, but it's the, it's the side effect, it's the impact. You want investment, yes. You can't have investment and not have these other bits as well, you know. So it's the kind of, what is the, where is that balance? Planning is always about balance. And I think we'll have to see how that plays out. But it is a massive game changer for St. Willis Marsh having the university moving in there. What we in planning try to do is, is to make sure that when that does go in, there are benefits, wider benefits for the city and the neighbourhood, or certainly in the neighbourhood, so that I, as someone who's not a student, feel comfortable walking through that environment because, I, you know, it's part of my city. I understand it's part of my city and I can go there. Uh, there are, you know, you could, you could point to certain places on the top of the hill here where lovely, lovely spaces, but I don't think Bristolians feel like they're, that's for them. And they would feel that it's actually part of the university and it's it's not even gated. It's not even gates you have to walk through, but you don't feel comfortable being there because you feel like, oh, you can only come here if I'm studying physics here. Yeah. 
So that's the, that's the kind of managing that balance and making sure that when you do have, because students clearly are going to need somewhere to live down there, when you do have that, it, it, you try and get that integration right. So it's, it's yes for the university, but it's for the city as a whole. Pete has nicely summarised the challenges and changes to St Philip's that we've heard through our many conversations with people down on the marsh. It's clear that there's a need for fluid mixed communities and development must be localised and thoughtful, driven by those who live and work in the area. There's still a bit of work to do if the council want to achieve an ideal modern community. People care about St Philip's Marsh, but it's in a difficult situation. It has an exciting but uncertain future. Our project and this podcast has focused on one area of Bristol, but the wider issues of changing land use, redevelopment and resisting gentrification isn't unique to St Philip's. The situation is ongoing and what the marsh will look like in 10 or 15 years time depends on the decisions made today. We wanted to end the podcast on an optimistic note and offer some perspectives on what a strong, positive, modern community might look like in St Philip's Marsh and beyond. And to bring things to a close, we asked our guests one final question. What do you think makes a modern community? Well, one of the things we can think about by looking at the past of a place like St Philip's Marsh is the fact that, you know, community in terms of where you live was in harmony also with the community that was built around where you work as well. And obviously that that's changed a lot with industrial change in the UK. But I guess a good community is somewhere where people feel like they belong to a community of people who work there and also people who live there as well. And, and those two things exist in a type of productive harmony. Um, the danger with the need for housing, obviously, which is a major public need and one that you know the planning around St Philip's Marsh is trying to respond to, is that you have areas that are for housing and then areas that are for work elsewhere. And you know it's seen as untenable to have forms of industry close to where people work. I think a good community combines opportunities to work, opportunities to live um, around one another so that people can really feel that they can, can belong um, and have meaning in the, in the spaces that they inhabit. I think at the core of community is a general sense of care, um, which is harder and harder when we're disconnected from each other. I think a lot of our modern life breeds apathy towards our neighbours, um, when in fact it could make our lives a lot easier to be interconnected and rely on the people around us. I think in terms of Marsh, like the modern economy looks a lot like sharing. So between the businesses, they're either sharing knowledge or actual like goods. I think three things that make a successful modern community. Um, and I think the first one has to be sustainability. Um, I don't think a community um, is is possible unless it is, um, you know, zero carbon. I know the council's aspiration is the whole city will be by 2030. So that has to be at the forefront. It has to include, you know, renewable energy and efficient buildings as standard. It has to be built with walking and cycling as a priority. Um, so jobs and housing need to be close enough together for that to be realised. Um the second, I would say, is inclusivity I think, that, and kind of equality. I think this is something Bristol has quite fundamentally failed at for a long time, taking my university hat off and talking as someone who's known and lived in Bristol most of my life. Um, if you look at life expectancy, for example, a woman in Cotton is expected to live exactly 10 years longer than a woman in Lawrence Hill, which is, what, two miles away. 
Um, and if you take any socioeconomic measure, health, finances, um, it, it's, it all maps that picture. You know, it's, it's wrong in and of itself, but it also means we are missing out on the talents of a lot of those people. And I think any city which wants to be um, kind of sustainable also needs to include all of its citizens. And finally, I think, um, and this is a more kind of specific thing that we're grappling with at the moment, is communities need a meeting point, somewhere to go for that sense of community. Uh, I don't, it, it, what makes a modern community? Up to people. People make, make a modern community. We have to make sure that these places are affordable, that people can actually afford to live in these places. And as soon as you've done that, then you get a good mix of people living in these places. And that's what makes a modern community or should make a modern community. Because at the moment, modern communities are being defined by the price of the houses. And that's not the right way to make a place. It has to be that anyone, should they choose to live there, can afford to live there. And they can afford to buy that loaf of bread from the corner shop. Or they can afford to get a pint in the pub or they, they could, they've got a place they can feel comfortable with and they can go to worship there on these other sorts of uses. That's what makes that, that's what should make a modern community, I believe. And with that, we come to an end. I'm Sam Bush. And I'm Bethan Bushell. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you learned something and found it interesting. And a big thanks to all of our guests for coming on and talking to us. And thanks to Natasha Walker for her behind the scenes help and offering tech support along the way. Mm-hmm.